The Bible reading today is from John 12, verses 12 to 19. You can find it in your Bibles, on your phones, or printed in the bulletin. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. Thank you, Ashley, for reading for us and praying with us. Um, as we get started uh, this morning, just uh, so you understand why you might hear me sucking on something. Um, I, I was gone last week, and as you know, last week I had a bad cold, and then I left with that cold, and then I got over that cold, and then I got home on Friday, and uh, yesterday I got another cold. Yeah, who said ah? Thank you for that. I know I'm a man, so I complain about my health all the time, and things seem worse to me than they really are, but... I don't like having a cold. And so you might hear me sucking on my fisherman's friend while, uh, while I'm preaching, just so that we can get through this uh, message together this morning. I apologize if it annoys you. Okay. Um, we are currently in a series that we've been calling Encounters with Jesus. And what we've been doing is, is we've been making our way through the gospel according to John and looking at different encounters that people have had with Jesus throughout this gospel. And what we've been trying to do is we're trying to, to understand Jesus through the lens of Scripture. So, so history has told us a lot about what people think Jesus is like, and uh, the culture tries to tell us who they think Jesus is. But we are trying to understand Jesus through the perspective of Scripture. And some of us, hopefully, have met Jesus for the first time. And some of us maybe are meeting him for the umpteenth time, but we're learning new things about him. And this week, we're discovering Jesus as the king. It's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is that Sunday uh, before Jesus' crucifixion, where Jesus made his way up to the city of Jerusalem and announced publicly his kingship. He had been announcing the coming of the king for a long time, or the coming of the kingdom of God for a long time throughout his ministry, but now he is announcing his kingship. And Jesus, the scriptures teach us, is the king that we have been looking for. He is the leader that our hearts so desperately long for. You know, Ashley actually alluded to it in, in her prayer when she prayed for the political situation that we find ourselves in the West right now. It's a curious time. Leadership 
in Western culture seems to be in rough shape. Who'd have thought that two of the world's greatest democracies, and I don't say that arrogantly, I actually say that with gratitude and joy, Canada, the United States, would be two countries that are facing questions around the corruption of leadership. And we're not the only countries. Uh, in the West, democracy has been undermined in all kinds of countries as we've been learning about the meddling of one country in another country's political affairs and, and the corruption surrounding leaders once they enter into uh, office. What we're discovering is, is that there's a great deal of mistrust in our leaders currently. And it's disappointing. It's disappointing because great leadership historically has always instituted a sense of hope in people. Great leadership gives hope to people. Think, for example, World War II when it looked like Germany was going to sweep across Europe. And God raised up, and I really believe it was God who raised up a man named Winston Churchill to be the leader of the British Empire and the free world at the time. And when he rose to speak against the powers of, the, of Germany and the Axis powers that were sweeping over, over uh, Europe at the time, when he spoke, he brought hope with his gravitas and with his words and with his leadership. He brought hope to uh, the, the allied forces and, and renewed hope that they could actually overcome this axis of evil that was sweeping over the country. We can win, people thought. Now here's the thing. The Bible says that each and every one of these great leaders of the past, and I picked Winston Churchill, but you could pick your own favorite leader of the past. There's many to choose from. The Bible says that each and every one of those is really just an appetizer. You know what an appetizer does, right? You go to the restaurant, you get some apps, and they, they, they wet your whistle. You know what I mean? Like they get your, your stomach juices flowing. They make you hungry, <laughs> you know? If you're hungry and you, get, you eat appetizers, they just make things worse. That's the whole idea of an appetizer. They, they create this longing in you. And, and Scripture teaches that each of these great leaders of the past that we've known and loved has been an appetizer to prepare us for the leader that our hearts truly, truly long for, Jesus Christ. It's because in him, and we've seen this in other contexts uh, over the past month, in Jesus Christ, we see this remarkable fusion of characteristics that you do not see in any other leader. You see his highness and you see his lowness. You see his, his majesty and his meekness. You see his royalty and his humility. Uh, if you look at verse 19 of our text, what does it say? The whole world has gone after him. You see his highness. But then in verse 15, you read, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see his humility. He's the one we crave, okay? He's the one, the true hero that we want to follow. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to consider this King Jesus. As you'll see in the outline, we're going to going to think a bit about our longing for a true king. We're going to see then the secret of Jesus Christ's kingliness and then the results of that kingliness. Those three things, here we go. First of all, 
our longing for a king. What is true kingliness? What is true greatness in leadership? All the tales of the Western world, when they, they tell stories of great leadership, you always see this combination of a leader that is both incredibly fierce, but also incredibly meek. And so his eyes flash at injustice. And he is the first to stride into battle when a battle is to be undertaken by the people. And he is just and he is incorruptible. He cannot be corrupted. He cannot be bought off. He does not play favorites. When he stands, when you're in his presence and he stands before you, he drips confidence, boldness. He is magisterial and confident, but at the same time, there's not a hint of pride within him. He is tender and kind. He is patient and gentle. You know, he, he is not only the first to have his eyes flash at injustice, but he is also the first to weep over, sor- over sorrow. He has deep concern for the lowly. He is sensitive. He, he welcomes children to him. He, he shows deep interest in all his subjects. Have you ever had somebody great or someone in your own mind who you thought was great, let's put it that way, whether they're great or not actually doesn't matter in this case. You thought they were great. They had great esteem in your eyes. Have you ever had someone like that pay incredibly close attention to you? You ever been in a coffee shop with someone that you really, really admire? Someone very, very important to you whose opinion of you matters very, very deeply and they seem so focused on you and, they, and everything else has been blocked out and they show tremendous concern for your life? It's absolutely exhilarating. To see someone of greatness want to know you with such depth. I, I mean, there are illustrations of this all, all around us, but I, I can only give you the ones that resonate with me. Sorry. Lord of the Rings. Okay? Aragorn. He's the man. You know? If you haven't read the books, read the books. But I know a lot of you won't, so we'll just talk about the movie. Viggo Mortensen, is that the guy who played him? He does such an amazing job of being this this man who is the first to fly into battle. And he is fierce against injustice. And his eyes do flash with anger at it. But he is also so tender and so gentle and so humble. Even to the point where he he doesn't even know if he should take up the mantle of his lineage and claim the kingship of Gondor. He's a remarkable, he's a, he's a great example of exactly what I'm trying to describe for you. Now, why, 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 why do we long for that? Why do we long for that? We've never had it. Most of the time, kings are terrible. Most of the time, absolute leaders are tyrants, and we do everything in our power to overflow, overthrow them and get rid of them. Most of us are living in democracy. Well, we are right here right now, living in a democracy. We believe that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and yet... Strangely enough, we have this longing for that kind of leadership, even if it's in a democracy. We want our prime minister to be a statesman. We want them to represent well. Well, the Bible says we long for this because we actually have it in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Scripture describes Jesus as the epitome 
of these character traits. He is the lion and the lamb. He is fierce and strong and mighty, but he is also lowly and meek. Revelation chapter 5 describes this Jesus this way. Listen to what Revelation chapter 5 says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look on it. And I began to weep. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look on, into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lion who has conquered is a lamb who has been slain. This is how the Bible describes this Jesus. We long for this king because we need this king and we have this king. That's the first point. Secondly, what's the secret of Christ's kingliness? I've already kind of uh, alluded to it, but um, it's his humility and his majesty. It's that combination of these two characteristics that go together so perfectly in him. First of all, his humility. Jesus is entering the, the, the city of Jerusalem, riding on this donkey, and, and the crowds are gathering. There are crowds that are coming up with him from Bethany, which is just on the outskirts of, Je of Jerusalem. And he had been there, had, had uh, raised Lazarus from the dead, pretty incredible miracle. And so people had heard of him and had seen him. And now they were following him into the city of Jerusalem. So they're coming with him. And then there's those who had heard about everything that he had done who are coming out of Jerusalem to meet him. And so this massive crowd is gathering around him. And they're crying out, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? It means give salvation now. And they're saying that this Jesus, who they are crying Hosanna to, is the one who is going to bring them their salvation. They think that he's coming up into Jerusalem to take the capital. You know, in every war, if you take the capital, you win the war, right? And so they think that Jesus is coming to take the capital away from the Roman overlords and establish the kingdom of Israel, and he comes riding in on a donkey. Now, he's fulfilling a prophecy that you find in Zechariah chapter 9. It says this in verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now listen. Righteous and having salvation is he. So this is the picture that the crowds have of this Jesus. He is righteous and he is having salvation and he's going to ride in and bring about our salvation. But then he comes riding in on a donkey. That's what Zechariah says. That's what Jesus is fulfilling. And that part they don't understand. Because they would expect a conquering king to ride in on a steed, on a war horse, you know? 
And Jesus instead comes in on this donkey. And a donkey was a symbol of peace. A king on a donkey doesn't go to war. And here's what Jesus was saying as he rode in. He's saying, listen, I have come to bring you freedom. But if I come and I just bring you freedom from political oppression, you will still have personal oppression. And it is far, far greater. If I come in and I rid you of the Romans so that you are free to walk about and, and, and live in, in any old way you want, you will still be under the rule of, of your sin. And you will be under the penalty of your sin. You will still be subject to judgment. You will still be subject to guilt. You will still be subject to death and meaninglessness. You think your problem is the Romans, that that's your biggest problem. But that's not your biggest problem. He's saying your biggest problem is that you are separated from the God who created you, who loves you and delights in you. You have turned your back on him in rebellion and you have said, I will live my own way. And now you are under his judgment. And listen, that is precisely, that is precisely the problem that we have today too. So many people think that Jesus came to take away their addiction or Jesus came to take away their depression or Jesus came to take away their, their relationship problems or Jesus came to take away their anxiety or Jesus came to take away their, their struggles with their children. And it is true that Jesus makes a difference in every single one of those areas. I am not questioning that for a second. But if that is all you are looking for from Jesus, you are not understanding exactly what he came to do. The roots of our anxiety, the roots of our financial problems, the roots of our relationship issues, the roots of all of these things, our addictions, they are rooted in our sin, in our separation from God, or in the sin of others as they have done things to us that we have been victimized by. The problem at the heart of it all is sin. And if God came, Jesus came into this world just to deal with politics, or just to deal with socioeconomic issues, or just to deal with, with, with mental health issues, if he came just for that and nothing else, then we are no better in the end. We are no further ahead because we're still dead in our sin and our transgressions, as Paul said. Jesus rides up into the city on a donkey because he says, I'm coming in weakness to deal with the biggest problem. I will put my head on the chopping block where yours should be. I'm strong enough to be weak to take your place and face the music for you. Now, this is hard, 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 hard to get. These poor disciples, hey, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. How many times do the gospel writers say that? His disciples didn't get it. And notice it says, his disciples didn't understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had to be done to him. See, the irony of the kingship of Jesus is this. In his death, he is glorified. And so in his defeat, he is victorious. 
It's the subversive, upside-down kingdom of God, okay? In his humility, he serves his people as a servant king. In his humility, laying down his life for his people, he rules most perfectly and beautifully for his people. Do you understand? He's humble. Oh, but he's also majestic. He's also majestic because what does it say? It says that in verse 13, it says, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. So they're out with these palm branches. Jesus. Right? What's so great about a palm tree? Well, you know, it's like a ticker tape parade, okay? And when you don't, when you're just sort of having an impromptu ticker tape parade, you can't rush out and go get confetti and streamers and all that kind of stuff. They didn't have that back then anyway. So what did they do? They cut palm branches and they waved those, and it was the same idea. But the thing is, is that, that for Jesus, the symbolism was far, far deeper than that because, you see, the future was prophesied in those palm branches waving. Little did these people know that as they waved those palm branches as he entered into the city, that they were actually prophesying the future. Listen to what Psalm 96 says. This is verses 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. And Isaiah 55, verse 12, says this, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Jesus knows this, that the next time he comes, those palms will be waving, but they'll still be on the trees. They'll be clapping their hands, you see, because at Christ's second coming, at his return, all creation will bloom. At his passing, all the latent potential in everything will finally be released. The the universe will explode in its flourishing. Listen, inside each and every one of you is a longing for greatness. And that can turn ugly, okay? I spent a week away. You guys, you know, I'm in this Arrow leadership training. And it's basically, it's boot camp for self-reflection and God doing divine surgery on your sinful hearts. And so a lot of my own personal junk is getting uprooted as I go through this training. And it's kind of painful. Some of it I knew before, but I didn't know how deeply rooted it was, and I tried to kind of deal with it in a happenstance kind of patchwork way. But now, you know, they don't let you off so easily, and they just kind of keep going after the root. And what I'm discovering is, is that inside each and every one of us is this, this ambitious longing for greatness. You've all got it in you. I've got it in me. It manifests in some ugly ways. It's, this is not group therapy time, so I'm not going to spill it all out for you. But here's the thing. Each and every one of us has a longing for greatness because we think, we believe, we almost know that there is a spark of something glorious inside of us that constantly is not reaching its potential. It gets 
it gets sidelined, it gets kiboshed, it gets obstructed, it gets derailed, it self-destructs. Usually it's our own fault. We, we falter. We're just, we're too lazy to make it happen, or we're, we're not smart enough to make it happen, or we're not skilled enough to make it happen. But there's, there's, there's a longing we have to be beyond what we are. And the promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ is, is that that greatness that's inside of you, that you don't have to, you don't have to, to feel bad about. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to uh, r- repent of having that longing within you. That, that longing will actually, that being will be completely unleashed when he returns. In other words, what I'm saying is that all that you were meant to be will be. You have no idea how glorious a creature you are. But when Jesus Christ returns and you are united to him fully and completely and perfectly, all the glory that, 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 that is built up there or that is obscured there will finally be released. It won't just be, listen, oh, I got to go fast, but listen, it's not just going to be that if you had a bad back, you're going to have a good back. Or if you... Uh, were physically disabled and you couldn't walk, that now you'll be able to walk. Those are wonderful truths that are going to happen. The blind will be able to see. The mute will be able to speak. Those who have mental illness will have those mental illnesses taken away. But you and I, just regular people perhaps who have our issues, but not any one of these conditions, the diagnosable conditions, we are still incomplete. We are no less damaged by sin than people with mental illness or physical illness. Every single one of us is is damaged and corrupted by sin and that is going to be gone and who you and I were meant to be will finally, finally be. You know when a a store or a restaurant doesn't do well and it closes, you walk by and it's all papered over and you don't know what's going on, but then you'll see, all of a sudden you'll see a sign that says, under new management. Then you go, hmm. And then maybe a sign, you see another sign, coming soon, such and such, right? And there's a grand opening coming. We're under new management. The world is under new management. There is a grand opening coming. Everything that Jesus is in charge of will spring forth in beauty and glory and wonder. Do you want that? See, that's the hope that true leadership instills. You see, under under true leadership, you feel like anything's possible. I know the Leafs stunk it up real bad last night. But when you've got Mike Babcock as your coach, you feel like anything's possible. Have you become cynical about your life, about your relationships, about your your future? Have you thought that marriage is never going to turn around? That relationship with my kid is never going to be more than it is. I'm never going to get over this anger problem. I'll never finally put to death that addiction. It's just hopeless. Don't be hopeless. The king has come. And in and through him, anything is possible. When he comes forth, the sea trembles and the earthquakes and the mountains melt. And yet he is so kind and gentle that he takes up little toddlers into his arms. 
and he cuddles them and he hugs them like they're his own. Last thing, the result of his kingliness. Well, we've talked a little bit about it already. But what's the result? See, the result of Christ's kingliness coming as the true king is actually he creates kingliness in you. As you fix your heart on him, that's what happens. Let me, let me try to illustrate this. So back in the 1980s, there's a guy named Wayne Gretzky who was the best hockey player on the planet. He was called the Great One. And Marty McSorley used to play with him on, I think of the Edmonton Oilers, yeah. And uh, Marty McSorley in an interview, he told a story about how he was in the middle of a playoff game, and I think it might have been an elimination game, and the Oilers were down, and he was sitting on the bench, and there was a rookie sitting beside him. And the rookie looked nervous, and he's like freaking out. He's like, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, are we going to win? Are we going to lose? He's, you know, he's all anxious and stuff like that. And Marty McSorley, he says in the interview, he said, I just looked over to him, and I said, don't sweat it, kid. We got Wayne. And he was totally calm, and he was totally confident, because he was playing with the great one. See, when you are caught up in the greatness of the king, he creates greatness in you, boldness of heart, you see. We all become like what we emulate. Who is Jesus? Are you emulating Jesus? Who is he? He is the servant king. And so... When you are fixated on him, you can serve too, probably in ways you never, ever, ever thought possible. I, I don't want to put Johnny on the spot. <laughs> Booyah! That was not planned, but was awesome. But what makes a young man who just accumulated, I don't know how many mountains of debt when you go to Redeemer, not so much anymore, praise the Lord, but... To leave university and say, it's time for me to go get a job. I want to serve the king as in, in, with athletes in action. And I don't know where my paycheck's going to come from, but I'm just going to sacrifice for his glory and for his sake and trust. I, and I'm going to go even more personally here for a minute. In this church, there are a number of people who have, who have taken the step to adopt children through CAS or have taken the step to become foster parents through CAS. And many of us have heard, I'm one of those, many of us have heard other people tell us, I could never do that. Bullocks. It's a bad word in England, but not so bad over here. <laughs> Don't say you could never do that. There is nothing special about me or my family. There are... I'm not trying to make you all foster parents. What I'm saying, though, is, is that there are ways of sacrificing for the king that you are called to, that you are capable of, that, that you could do, that you are terrified of doing, and you don't think you have what it takes. And, and the promise is, is you do, because you have the king. The king who is with you, who loves you, who gave himself for you. And when you are with him and united to him, his greatness becomes a part of you, you see. Look at this story on the front of your bulletin. 
I can't remember where I got it from, I'll be honest. Someone was asking me for the, for the citation. I just don't have one. It's some legendary story, and it's about the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And this is the day after the triumphal entry, okay? Listen to this. The donkey awakened, his mind still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. Never before had he felt such a rush of pleasure and pride. He walked into town and found a group of people by the well. I'll show myself to them, he thought. But they didn't notice him. They went on drawing their water and paid him no mind. Throw your garments down, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement. Someone slapped him across the tail and ordered him to move. Miserable heathens, he muttered to himself. I'll just go to the market where the good people are. They will remember me. But the same thing happened. No one paid any attention to the donkey as he strutted down the main street in front of the marketplace. The palm branches! Where are the palm branches, he shouted. Yesterday you threw palm branches. Hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother and obviously told her the story. Foolish child, she said gently. Don't you realize that without Jesus, you are just an ordinary donkey? But with him, you are not. We are most fulfilled when we are in service to Christ. With him, all our best efforts, they result in filthy rags. But with him, with him, his glory shines forth. And there are no ordinary people in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our king who is so great. Thank you for his humility. Thank you for his majesty. Thank you for his sacrifice and for his victory. Give us faith, Father, faith to trust in him, to follow him, to attempt great things for him as servants of that king. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.